Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I want to take you on a little journey today, just a real short one, but it's one that I'm sure almost all of you, whether it's at this particular place or somewhere else, uh, that you've experienced yourself. See, not long ago, I found myself cart-sitting at Costco. You know, you know, bravely protecting my cart from every other comer, you know, um, and mourning the fact that there weren't samples around, you know, the usual. (laughs) While my wife Jennifer disappeared into the hordes on a buy and cry mission to get whatever we could. Um, Those of you who've been there know that there is always, it seems, a sea of humanity flowing in both directions, down all the aisles, to the checkouts, everywhere you turn. The next thing, though, this day that I was sitting there minding my, my own cart, I heard a beep beep, beep beep, coming from behind me. And the more experienced gatherers amongst me immediately started jumping to the side of the aisle. I followed somewhat blindly, half turning to see a forklift with a load of indescribable, I'm sure you can't get anywhere else goodies uh, bearing down on me. The lingering memory I have is that tons of people just kind of parted, just scrambled to the side one way or the other as this lift sped right down the middle on us. It was obvious uh, that they had the right of way. Nobody tried to play chicken with the forklift. Nobody tried to hold their ground with their cart and make it swerve. I have a right to this. The sea of humanity simply parted right down the middle every time the beep beep was heard. I bring this up because it has become apparent to me that the historical person named Jesus Christ is a lot like this forklift in a crowded aisle. Let me explain. For the last 2,000 years, the person and ministry of Jesus Christ has driven head-on slowly but steadily into the mass of humanity, sort of forcing people to one side or the other. There's no middle ground. You don't play chicken with this. It's one side or the other. Forcing people to make a choice. One of the clearest teachings of the Bible is that everyone will have to make a choice. Everyone will have to answer One question, just one question. A friend once asked the famous Nobel Prize-winning physicist Isidore Rabbi how he had become a scientist in the first place. He replied that every day after school, his mother would ask him about his day. But she never wanted to know what he learned. She only ever inquired. She had one question herself. It was, did you ask a good question today? Rabbi goes on to say that asking good questions made me become a scientist in the first place. Asking good questions is sometimes more important than giving good answers, which is rather strange and almost laughable, isn't it? For we are obsessed these days with knowing and solving and drawing conclusions. But I have, but I I believe it nonetheless true and incredibly important for us to consider the tremendous value of a good question. Because in truth, a good question often is an examination and an answer all on its own. 
In Scripture, we see that God fully understands the value of a good and probing question. Countless times he asks questions that not only change the course of a person's life, but also powerfully echoed even into this present moment where we find ourselves today and serves to challenge us still. For example, when Adam and Eve were asked by God, where are you? I mean, what a great question. They're hiding from him. A question that still urges to us to consider our own place before God. Can you actually hide from God? No. What's your position in the world? Are you hiding? For example, twice he asks of Elijah, and uh, Elijah has fled now because Elijah has uh, done some wonderful things for God, but then Jezebel uh, puts a price on his head, so to speak, and she threatens him. He takes off. He hides in a cave. Twice God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What a great question. Why are you here? What are you doing? Maybe you've heard God asking you the same question in your life. Why are you here? What are you doing? He already knows the answer, you see. After all, he's right there talking to you in the first place. But are we willing to look into the reason ourselves? Are we willing to look into the mirror and acknowledge what we've done? Or when God asks Moses, what is that in your hand? Moses is like, they're not going to know I'm coming from you. They're going to say, who are you? He says, what's that in your hand? He has the staff in his hand. A question, frankly, that still encourages us to consider the little that we have, right? The, the resource that God has given us and offer it to him. And the mighty things he can do with even a stick when we dedicate it to him. Or what about the time when God asked the prophet Isaiah, whom shall I send? Whoa, there's a great question. Whom shall I send? A question that still challenges me. I suspect still challenges you to consider the task of taking the gospel to the world. Do you remember Isaiah's magnificent answer? Here I am, send me. This question is so important as we continue on in Matthew in the weeks ahead. You'll see it as we start to get towards the later, later chapters, how important that is. Who shall I send? Or the question he asks Ezekiel, which Pastor Stephan has reminded us of recently. Ezekiel's in front of a valley full of dry bones, and the question is, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Not to mention the eternally powerful question when God asked Jonah, is it right to be angry with me? Or he asked Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? I mean, who's in charge here? It reminds us to reflect carefully upon God's sovereignty and wisdom and, and the humility that should mark our approach every time we come to him. The Apostle Paul was, was Holy Spirit-inspired to follow the same pattern as well, like these two beauties from Romans. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Are you going to be a grace abuser? Does that mean you can just do whatever you want? A question that still strikes at the heart of our motivation for what we do. And perhaps the most quoted question of his, if God is for us, who can be against us? What a great question, reminding us of his power and who God is and, and that he is the victor in the struggle between good and evil. And what a great, big, huge, magnificent God we have fatherly watching over us. Even the angels get in on it with one of my favorite questions of all in the Bible at the empty tomb. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do we look for the living among the dead? 
We would expect that Jesus would be the master of the great question, and he is. Questions like, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And then there are the how much more questions, and there's a number of them. Oh man, don't get me started on those. I love those. All this indicates that a good and probing question is of equal, if not more value and importance than a good and reasonable answer. Today we will spend a few moments reflecting on what is perhaps the single most probing and revealing question ever asked and the single most important question you will ever answer. But first, I want you to picture Jesus and his disciples on the slopes of Mount Hermon overlooking the city of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus has been ministering now for a period of about two and a half years. He has performed miraculous signs and wonders. He has healed the blind, raised the dead, cast out demons, calmed the storms, and he has preached the good news of the kingdom. Most recently, Jesus has been teaching the crowds and we're told that many of them uh, were told that they, because they were just following him, that they, they were just following him. And that's awesome. They were just following around. Remember last week, we, he tried to get away and go across the Sea of Galilee, and when he got to the other side, they were there waiting for him. But Jesus wasn't just content that they were following along. He knew that it was important that they not just acknowledge him, but actually believe in him, so he challenged them on their beliefs. And he does that with the disciples as well. They're overlooking Caesarea Philippi, this large Roman city on the coast built to honor Caesar, hence the name. It's a center of uh, beautiful uh, buildings, uh, a temple of sparkling white marble uh, built by Herod the Great himself. It was a city of magnificent villas and palaces, fully dedicated to the worship of many idols and false gods. It's interesting that this is the context in which the questions come. So with this in mind, Jesus asked his disciples the first of two probing questions. The first is, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus already knew what the world thought of him after two and a half years. He said many times the world hated him because he is the light and the world loves the darkness and hates the light. In asking this question, he's not fishing for compliments. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us, frankly, a powerful and life-changing lesson. Practically everyone you see has an opinion about Jesus. Not only his disciples, those of us who are members of his body, everyone. Atheistic leaders draw upon his example of, lead, of leadership. Other religious, non-religious and religious representatives refer to him as, as one to follow in terms of his care for people. Revolutionaries are, are impressed by his social ethic and sociologists quote his sayings and parables when these support their vision of humanity. The Pharisees and the Sadducees certainly had an opinion about who Jesus was. And he's just spent a fair portion of his time actually warning people about their false teaching that like yeast in dough had infiltrated Israel. The world who had formed its opinion of Jesus that stopped short of following and believing in him who he really is. That he is a prophet at best is what their thought was. And now it's time for the disciples to understand the distinction. So he asks, who do people say the Son of Man is? Their response, ah, 
Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I mean, just ignore the fact for a moment that they're all dead, so this was like reincarnation, but it might be interesting to take a side glance across this list of characters for a moment, for it may well reflect a lingering habit of some people in our day to maintain similar types of opinions about Jesus. Firstly, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was well-known, <laughs> a curious guy in some ways. He walked the wilderness and called all who would listen to repent. He impressed upon people the reality of their sin and their need for God's forgiveness. Well, Jesus had a dramatic ministry and, and even to the end of his life enjoyed a strange mixture of fame and infamy. Not always popular, but always respected and revered, urging the people to do what? Repent and turn to God. And he was also baptizing. He had recently been, John had recently been beheaded, and now we, we're kind of, okay, so he's dead. Well, then maybe it's John coming back to life. Jesus, after all, called people to repent, insisted on their need for God's forgiveness, did so in a manner that wasn't always popular, but mostly respected. And he also had a sense of authority, and the determined nature of his ministry was to save people to save them from their sin. What of Elijah then? Well, he was best known for his zealous defense of the exclusive claim of God that he and he alone was to be worshipped, that the Israelites ought to have no other gods before him but the true and living God. Incidentally, Elijah also raised a young boy from the dead. Maybe this is Elijah. He was a preacher, defender of the glory of God, and a worker of dramatic miracles. Again, it's not surprising that Jesus was confused a little bit by the people with him. Jesus did, after all, preach strongly that there is but one true and living God who is worthy of worship, and he himself raised numerous people from the dead during his ministry. Elijah had always been looked on by the people as sort of the apex, the summit of the prophetic line. And do you know to this day, Jews expect the return of Elijah before the return of the Messiah, before the coming of the Messiah, and so they leave a chair vacant for Elijah when they celebrate the Passover. They leave an empty chair, not for Jesus, but for Elijah. Finally, what about Jeremiah? Jeremiah reacted against the empty and shallow religion of his people and called them to take their personal devotion to God much more seriously than they were. Jesus, too, stressed the importance of a living relationship with the Father and urged his disciples to take their faith absolutely seriously, even to the point of abandoning other things previously considered valuable, like even family, so that they could have a meaningful and committed faith in him. No doubt that while walking this earth, a variety, a whole widespread conglomeration of opinions about Jesus was just as common as it is today. But it's obvious that he was the forklift here because several times, at least three or four times in John, it says the people were divided because of Jesus. And it's no different in the world today. The world does not see nor accept the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. The world is still divided regarding the truth of who Jesus is. We live in a time when just about everything and anything of moral value has been brought into question. People are questioning everything. But what is so amazing to me is that so few are asking the most important question of all. Who is Jesus? 
Instead of seeking the truth for themselves, most people are satisfied with accepting the world's standard opinion regarding his identity. Buddhists, for instance, believe that Jesus was a wise and enlightened man who taught similar things to Buddha. Hindus believe that Jesus was an incarnation of God similar to Krishna, a wise man. Jehovah Witnesses believe he was God's first creation, the archangel Michael, who became a man. Mormons believe that he was one of the, the spirit because one of the spirit beings that all humans used to be, the spirit brother of Lucifer who became the devil. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet and a miracle worker, but he was not crucified nor raised from the dead. The Jews see him as a wise prophet. Albert Einstein read, wrote, he said, I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. H.G. Wells is a well-known author and historian. He said, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess at a historic level as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in history. The world views Jesus as a great teacher, a great philosopher, a great man, or even perhaps a great prophet who spoke with words of power and with conviction. But the world adamantly rejects the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Peter later wrote of him, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. But of course anybody can claim to be God. I can claim to be divine right now. But it would take you about the one second it took for me to say that for you to figure out that I was lying because my wisdom and my power and my inconsistent character really doesn't match up with what you would think a God would have. I love the story about the dad who was interviewing his daughter's fiance. He asked the guy, hey, I'm just wondering now that we're together and you know, you're marrying my daughter, what you're going to do for a job? Like, how are you gonna support my daughter? The fiance goes, well, I, I, I really don't know. I just think God will provide. The dad asks, what are you going to do for a house then? Well, he goes, um, don't really know that either. Uh, God will provide. What are you going to do for money? And the fiance says, I don't have a clue about that. I just think God will provide. The dad goes back and talks to his wife, and she asks, well, how did the meeting go? And he says, well, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. The bad news is he's got no house, he's got no job, and he's got no money and prospects. Good news is he thinks I'm God. <laughs> Nobody thinks I'm God because I can't back it up. None of us could back up that claim, right? We've got nothing. We don't have all power. We don't have all knowledge. We cannot be everywhere at once. Let's face it, sometimes we have trouble just being really present in one moment. But most importantly, our characters wouldn't ever, ever match up. But Jesus backed up his claims with his character and supernatural works. According to eyewitnesses, Jesus really did turn the water into wine. He really did feed 5,000 people and 4,000 people with just a few pieces of, of food. Jesus Christ walked on the water, we talked about that last week, and enabled Peter to do the same. He drove demons out of people. One day he, he said to a paralyzed guy he came upon, take up your mat and walk. The guy took up his mat and walked out of there. 
He encountered 10 men with leprosy. He gave them instructions to follow in obedience to be cleansed, and all of them were. Only one came back, praising God, a Samaritan, no less, which incidentally brought another telling question from Jesus. Were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Ah, oh, Jesus, forgive us for all the times you've answered our prayers, cleansed us in one way or another, and we've merrily gone on our way without ever coming back and praising God. C.S. Lewis noted that people who are growing, people who are thriving, people who are loving are the people who praise the most. And people who are stagnant, people who are cranky and self-centered, praise the least. In fact, he wrote, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I love the thought behind that. A great definition of praise. Once Jesus was on a boat with the disciples, they're in the middle of the sea when a storm comes up. The boat starts rocking and the water comes over the side and the disciples are bailing water and freaking out. Remember where Jesus was? Asleep, right? You know, I've often thought I would have loved to have been there on that boat in that moment when they asked Jesus to get up and help them. But that's really a kind of smugness on my part, I confess, because I know what's about to happen. I've read the story, and I want to watch their faces when he does what he does. But the truth of it is, if I had been there in that moment, in the same circumstance as the disciples, without knowing the outcome, how would my faith measure up if I were truly there? Well, Jesus wakes up gets up, walks to the front of the boat, and he goes, quiet, be still. The wind stops, the waves stop, and the lake turns to glass instantly. It says the disciples were frightened of the storm. <laughs> but when he calmed the storm, they were terrified. Who is this? Who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus challenged the religious leaders don't believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. And look how they respond to all of this. Well, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. We got to get rid of him. Now think about this. All the people, particularly these leaders, were heavily steeped in the Old Testament. That was their school. That was their only school, was to learn the Old Testament. Learn it. Memorize it. Learn it. Memorize it. They had studied all the prophecies dating back hundreds, even thousands of years. There were hundreds of them about the coming Messiah, the coming Savior of the world, and Jesus Christ was in the process of fulfilling every single one of them in front of their eyes. And yet, despite following him around and seeing firsthand all the miracles that Jesus did and hearing the great truths that he taught, not one, not one was suggesting that Jesus was the Messiah. Yet we know the Messiah's return was foremost in their thoughts because that speculation had recently been made about John the Baptist. The people are waiting expectantly. This maybe, this is, maybe he's the Messiah. They're thinking about it. It's in the forefront of their thoughts. And yet they can't see for the life of them that it's Jesus doing all these things and fulfilling the prophecies. Apparently, Jesus did not match up to anyone's messianic expectation. 
How bizarre is this? They failed to see and accept him as Messiah and Savior because their hearts were hard and their spiritual eyes were blind. But now the spotlight moves from all these other people's opinion and zeroes in on a new focus, a much more personal one. After listening to what the disciples describe as the world's viewpoint, comes the most important question of them all. But what about you? What about you? Why do you, who do you say I am? I imagine that when Jesus asked this question, all of heaven held its breath. It was like hearing the proverbial pin drop. It's just, what are they going to say? Have they got it yet? Are they going to answer this? Are they all just going to keep staring at the floor? Waiting to hear the reply. How are they going to answer the eternal question of the ages? And I sort of, in my mind's eye, see Jesus looking into the eyes and into the very hearts of all 12 of his disciples gathered there, Peter and Judas among them. How did they see him? What did they see in him? Had they grown to truly know who he is? Finally, Peter spoke up and confessed, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The Bible says we confess what we believe. And Peter's classic answer does two things, both very forcefully, which are not a surprise to us who've read all the way to the finish line, but to Jesus and the other disciples, it established two huge and yet unspoken truths by anyone other than Jesus himself. These had never been verbalized ever before in the history of mankind. First, it identified Jesus as the Messiah the one who was to reign forever on the throne of David and save his people. You are the Messiah. Never been said before. Second, it made the huge leap to identify Jesus as divine. You're, you're, you're divine. You're the son of the living God. You're God. Up to this point, the prevailing thought watered down from the prophecies of old was that the Messiah was going to be a great man. A, a, a great ruler raised up from among the people who would lead them in a triumphant revolt against whoever was tyrannizing them at the moment. And of course, at this moment, it's the Romans. Together, Peter was voicing for the very first time the confession that countless millions of us have made since. That Jesus was no mere man, but God himself come to save his people. And I say Peter did it forcefully because in the original Greek there is a, the definite article the or the four times it's repeated. We wouldn't say it like this in English, which is why it got translated differently. Our syntax, our rhythm is different. But the intent of the force is lost in a little bit because what Peter really was trying to say was, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the God, you are the living one. How was Peter able to make this great confession when the crowds and the Pharisees all missed it? Peter was not the sharpest pencil in the box, I don't think. So how did Peter come to this realization about Jesus? 
This was so new, so true, and so important a confession that Jesus pointed out that Peter didn't somehow arrive at that by fluke or by somehow he just kind of, you know, the brain synapses actually worked for a moment. He didn't arrive at it in any kind of thing in his, in his confession by himself, but it was a result of a specific divine revelation to him from God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my, my Father in heaven. How would you like for the eternal blessings of God to be on your life? It's not at all complicated. It comes down to how each of us answers the very same question which Jesus now poses to us all. Like, like he did to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? Before you answer, let me show you what Jesus said about himself. Right in the middle of some of Jesus' most brilliant moral dis discourses that had everybody saying, yes, this is the smartest person who ever lived. His teaching is amazing. Jesus would say near the end, oh, and by the way, I'm God's son, the savior of the world. People went, ah, now did you have to include that little bit? We were doing just fine. You were a good teacher. It was all going so well. And, and, and now you go and say something like that? Jesus had a way about him where he would just include that. One time he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. People went, oh, he was, he was so good till that point. But there you go again. Why don't you just stick to your basic teachings that we all like so well, that just keep us content and happy? Just philosophize for us. Just tell us how we ought to live our lives. Just lay off this claiming to be God's son bit. The savior of the world, just drop it. The only one worthy of all people's worship and the only one representing the hope of heaven, get off of it, would you? That's what sends people flying to one side of the room or the other, one side of the aisle or the other. It's that forklift coming down the aisle that forces a choice. Another time, Jesus was teaching, and at the end he said, oh, by the way, if you've seen me, you have seen God the Father, because I and the Father are one. With alarming regularity, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the only Savior from the penalty of sin, the only one worthy of our worship. When Jesus was put on trial, he was asked point blank, okay, let's put the cards on the table here. Are you, in fact, or are you not the Son of God? The record tells us in Mark 14, Jesus simply says, I am. I am. I mean, the whole Old Testament, that kind of just, who are you, God? Just say, I am, sent me. Everything just comes ripping forward to that moment. I am. All throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus claimed to be God's son. And that's what evoked the dramatic responses that he got. You really have a hard time staying neutral, don't you? When someone is saying, unless you follow me, you're on the path to destruction. It tends to be sort of one way or the other. And it's true about each of us here today. You're in one camp or the other. Whether you're here with us or whether you're at home watching this, it's true of all of us. We're in one camp or the other. Which are you in? Why are you in it? Are you sure you're in the camp you should be in? The single most important thing any person needs to understand about Jesus is that he is the Son of God. 
All his teaching, all his work, dying on the cross for our sin depends on him being who he said he is. If he's not God, it all crumbles away. And his death has no more meaning than any other. But because he is God, his payment for our debt of sin has infinite value, doesn't it? How can you place a price on that? God's blessings are reserved for those who choose Christ who love Christ, who confess Christ, and who follow Christ. Being blessed by God does not mean the world will like you and accept you. When you choose Christ, the world will hate you, persecute you, and despise you because the world hates Jesus and his truth. However, when you choose Jesus, God's hand of blessing will be on your life as you seek his will and as you follow him. All that we've learned, all that we've heard becomes irrelevant if we do not intimately know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. Christianity, you see, is really a personal walk with Jesus. It is for this reason that we have the opportunity to approach the throne of grace ourselves. It is Jesus who is our high priest, and to him we go with our supplications, our praise, and our sacrifice. And Peter answers the question perfectly. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. This is who Jesus should be to us all. And then Jesus adds, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. Now, the phrase on this rock is not explained in this dialogue any further, giving rise to three main interpretations. And I'm going to really briefly go through all of them because when we're going through the Bible and we hit some passages, we don't just skip them because we're not sure, right? But at the outset and at the end, I'm going to emphasize the overarching and the main point of what Jesus says because he's about to talk about something new for the very first time. It's the first time this word ecclesia will ever get mentioned, his church. In the overall context, he's communicating to us that there is a solid foundation for his church. It's rock solid. And I think you'll see that each interpretation wants to end up there despite the beginning differences. There is also confusion which arises from Peter's name. Petros in the Greek, which is a masculine noun meaning rock or stone, but Jesus doesn't use Petros when he says this on this rock. Jesus uses the feminine form Petra when he says on this rock. Petra was used every day to refer to bedrock or foundational rock. And his listeners, hearing the different words, see, they would have been there and they would have heard, oh, Petra, not Petros. I heard Petra. Well, he's obviously then making a leap here into what Petra means, not Petros. He's obviously not talking about Peter here. It's far more likely they would have smiled like you do when I make a play on words. Okay, you groan, but you know what I mean. He's making probably a play on words here using Petra, Petros, to take him to Petra. It's not totally earth-shaking and changing everything, but just so you understand, because Pastor Ray often goes into that, you know, what kind of, was it masculine, feminine, was it generic, what, what, where's this going, right? And there, and let me add one further comment to this, which then just says, you know, ah, we're all left kind of wondering, and that is that Jesus probably said this in the Aramaic, and then it had to be translated to the Greek, and then translated to the English. So here we are. But there you have it. 
And you'll understand then that it, there's opportunity here for various conclusions. The first one being, of course, well, Peter's the rock. Some have taken this very literally and built their foundation and even the foundation of their religion on the person of Peter and his successors. Most, however, even who say it's Peter, don't take it so much more literally and go more broadly than that, and that Peter is the first rock of many who will make uh, this confession and thus become another part of the foundation of the church. Number two, Peter's faith is the rock. In other words, Peter's faith expressed in what he believes, his confession about Jesus, is the rock upon which the church will be built. Faith is what the church is built on. Jesus builds the church on the faith of those who make this confession. Number three, Christ is the rock. This goes specifically to the preface I gave about the forms of the Greek word for rock, right? And the inference that Peter is one of many rocks who will add to the foundation the bedrock who is Jesus, the sure foundation upon which his church will be built. A couple of sidebar notes for me personally on this. I'll, you heard personally, right? I find it highly unlikely that Jesus was referring to Peter the man. As the weeks ahead will reveal, even frankly into uh, the rest of this chapter, um, Peter's not quite there yet. It's, I don't think it's time to single out Peter as the church's foundation and when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, it comes upon thousands of others as well and subsequently millions of other followers. The right answer may be included in all three, so I'm going to let Peter himself comment on this. And this is where I think we should rest this discussion in agreement that Peter would know probably best of all and he will get to the bottom line. And this is what he says. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter doesn't even suggest for a moment that he's the rock on which the church is built, but rather insists that Jesus is the foundational stone, and those of us who believe are living stones being built right into the very structure of his temple, his church, around him, the precious and solid rock cornerstone. Notice Jesus doesn't say something generic like, at church, either, or the church, which we often do. He says, I will build my church. This is one of only two references in the Gospels to this new thing called the church. This new group of followers whose foundation and identification would be their belief in Jesus as the son of the living God, the promised Messiah, the one who would come to save people from their sins, the Savior. Make no mistake, those of you who today can answer as Peter did, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are not just members of a church. You are not just members of the church. You are members of something so much more personal than that. You are members of his church. You've been adopted not into a family of God. You've been adopted into his family, built into his family. Jesus literally takes it and makes it personal to each one of us. But he's not finished. 
What he said next must have startled all the disciples. He's about to tell them next in this chapter that he's going to be killed on the third day and be raised to life. But first, he wants to tell them that they will move forward without him. He's already sowing the seeds. He's already sort of paving the ground with some comfort for them because what's about to happen and what he's about to tell them is like earth-shaking for them. They've been following him for three years. They're still a little bit like, so when does the whole, you know, freedom thing come? They're following him, though, and they're seeing, and now they've had this confession for the first time. You are the Savior. You're the Messiah that we've been waiting for. You are God. But now he's about to tell them, yeah, I know, that paints this really great picture, doesn't it? But actually, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to to, be raised to life. So he wants to tell them, you're going to move forward without me. And I'm going to give you, notice the future tense here, I'm going to give you the keys and the authority to unlock the doors of heaven to others. But that is still to come. Notice the future. It's still to come. I will give you the keys. I will, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You're going to have authority. I think we can interpret that from the lack of any questions about this, because you'd think there'd be a pile of them, wouldn't you? And the events that still to follow that come along, the disciples probably had no real idea what Jesus is talking about here exactly. Well, what relates to them, or what's this thing called ecclesia, the church? What, uh, What are you talking about? But I want you to remember this foreshadowing as we continue on in this study of Matthew. And then, as if to reinforce that they really don't have all the pieces yet to make the puzzle, he says, yeah, and don't tell anybody else that I'm the Messiah just yet. To make our choice clear in answer to his question, who do you think I am? I want to take you for a moment back to an illustration that Jesus uses to convey how critical our answer to that question is. He says, and this is going back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. In the eyes of Jesus, there's no good reason not to do what he said to do, because what he tells us to do in his word, his word, rightly understood, is always the best course of action. It's not compliance. It's not mechanical. It's not a rule book. It requires discernment and judgment. It means becoming a person of radiant goodness. It's the best to follow his word. These are actually two little stories we've just read put side by side for comparison. And the way to understand them is to do that, set them side by side and look at what is similar in each story and almost sort of push that to the side and then particularly focus in on what's different. When you locate the difference, you get the point. In these two stories, everybody builds a house, not a variable. You could replace the word house with the word life. We might put it like this. Everybody is forming a character. Everybody is constructing a soul, badly or beautifully, on purpose or by accident, with God's help or on our own. Everybody builds a house. Everybody is building a life. 
You do this mostly by the choices we make when we answer the questions of life. How will I spend my time? What words will I speak? What are the thoughts that will occupy my mind and where shall they come from? What shall I do with my money? What people shall form and shape me? What shall day after day after day after day of my life go forward look like and what should it be spent building? Everybody builds a house. Everybody builds a life. You can't avoid this. By default, you're, doing, you're building it somehow. It's mostly built not on what has happened to us, which is what we often focus on, but rather on our answers to these life's questions. A second constant is everybody faces storms. We looked at that last week a bit. But Jesus' story is not just talking about problems in general that all come to us. He has something particular in mind here with storm. In the Bible, a storm is often used as an image of the judgment of God. How God does not intend to let this world go on being messed up and his intention is to finally set things right. Every builder is going to stand before God. Every life builder, every one of us, is going to stand before God. Everybody builds a life. Everybody builds a house. Everybody faces storms. What's the variable then? The variable in this story is what foundation you choose to build your life upon. You will either build your life on the solid rock, Jesus' unchanging and unlimited grace and power, identifying with him and by the Holy Spirit's power, obeying his word and the call on your life to be part of his church. Or you will choose to build your life on the ever-shifting sand beneath you, which will fail you eventually. It is striking that when Jesus describes these two people, he doesn't say, as I might have, here's the story of a good man and an evil man. No, no, no. There was a wise man and a foolish man. Jesus knew this about us. We don't usually choose to be evil, right? Who goes out of here saying, can't wait to get out of church, I'm going to be evil today. No. Life just kind of happens and shapes us, right? Parents understand this. When kids do something they should not, something destructive, something foolish, something infuriating, parents always ask the same question. Why? Why did you do this foolish thing? Why did you cut your sister's hair until she was bald in order to make a little nest for birdies in a styrofoam cup? Why did you shove that Cheerio up your brother's nose? Why did you stick a light bulb in your mouth that was so big you could not open your mouth wide enough to get it out again? Why? What were you thinking? Always the same question. And children always around the world always respond with the same answer. I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time, right? I don't know. Why'd you build your house on the sand? I don't know. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Just foolishness. Nobody goes out in the world and plans on being greedy or selfish or just not caring about human needs, spending all their resources on themselves. Nobody plans to go through life bitter, joyless, in despair. Nobody plans on going to hell. Nobody plans it. It just happens. So rock or sand, which do you want to build your life on? Who do you say that Jesus is? In whom does your hope lie today? Whom do you choose to follow? This is the great question that God would set before every one of us through his son Jesus. Who do you say that he is?
Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.